Hey, let's turn our Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 8. We're going to talk about This Is You with Resurrection Power, part 2. So we'll do a brief review of part 1. Uh, but in Acts chapter 17, you have the famous Mars Hill sermon where Paul was in Athens, Greece, and he's trying to connect with these guys who are not listening. A lot of them didn't even believe in the resurrection. So in an attempt to connect with his audience, he quotes from non-Christian poets. We call it secular but, and so in uh, verse 28 of Acts 17, he goes, For we are also his offspring. And he goes, Oh, yeah, yeah, I know that poem. Well, I want to follow Paul's footsteps here. And so he quoted from non-secular poets. I'm going to quote one from today. His name is Billy Joel. Um, as far as I know, he's, he's uh, did I say non-secular? Non-Christian. But in one of his songs, he, he sings, uh, And So It Goes. And he, he, he pictures a rose. He uses that an, as an illustration. And, and implied is that most people see a rose, they want to uh, appreciate its beauty. They want to appreciate its fragrance. Yeah, it's got thorns. Just watch out for the thorns. But in his song, he says, every time I've held a rose, it seems I've only felt the thorns. And so it goes, and so it goes. So what he's saying is, you know, when it comes to this love thing, I keep getting hurt. I, I don't see the, the beauty, I don't sense the fragrance, I just, I get hurt by the thorns every time. But the neat thing about his song is he remains hopeful. He remains hopeful and he says, oh, but I'm not giving up, and he remains vulnerable and hoping uh, to find love. So Romans chapter 8, what we're doing today, this is for those who want to experience that there's more to life than just the thorns on the road. So here's our review. For, for chapters, we've read about how sinful every one of us is. Chapter 7 ends with that, oh, wretched man that I am, who, not what, not what three-step program, but who will deliver me from this body of death? You remember, that was, uh, uh, back then, 2,000 years ago, one of the ways they could inflict capital punishment on someone, if you murdered someone, say you're a guy, you murder a guy, they take off your shirt and they strap him skin to skin to your back. And you can't take him off. You actually are walking around with a dead body. It's decaying, it's disgusting, it stinks. And we've read of, uh, of, uh, that it's possible it would stink so bad, the smell alone would kill you. And so Paul's going, I'm guilty of not just capital punishment, but eternal punishment. And it's, I feel like I'm carrying around this body of death and that I've been condemned to death. I've been sentenced to death. Who will deliver me? And then he goes, oh, I thank God for Jesus. So in chapter 7, he has what we call eye trouble. 32 times he says, I tried to do this. I promised God I wouldn't do this. I promised God I would do this. And, he, and it's all about I, 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 my strength. It's not even, Holy Spirit's not even mentioned in chapter 7. Chapter 8, the major thrust is the Holy Spirit of the living God. So, chapter 8 begins with that now, right now, there's no condemnation. I used to think that meant I'll never feel bad about my sin again. You know, condemnation is like, I call it the uh, a spiritual, uh, spiritual hangover, where you just say, oh, why did I do that? What? That's not this at all. This is referring back to the body of death. This is referring back to, I've been sentenced to death. And now, because of Jesus, there's no more condemnation. Remember the law of, 
of uh, double jeopardy, once the sin was committed, once the trespass was committed and it was judged, you can't judge it a second time. I'm the one who committed the sin. I'm guilty of capital punishment, of eternal punishment, but Jesus paid for it. It's done. I don't have to pay for it. That would be double jeopardy. So now I have no condemnation. There's no death sentence over my life. So he says, now there's this new law of the, the, the new law of the spirit uh, of the life in Jesus Christ. Now, he's saying the old law is like gravity, right? Sin is like gravity. I drop this, gravity is going to pull it down every time. Gravity, the sin, the temptation to my old sinful nature, it's still there. It's always there. Until we get to heaven, it's always there. But there's this new law of leverage. It drops and I catch it with another. Oh, that's like the law of the spirit. Though there's the, the sinful temptation is always there. This new law is it's wonderful. I'm caught by the Lord. So he says, now in Christ, everything changes. It's the game changer in a great way. Meaning in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, anyone, that means you, that means me, anyone is in Christ. It's a new creation. All things become new. All, it might take a while, but they all become new. So what, what do we do with this? There's a new way to think. And so it says, be spiritually minded, not carnal minded. That, that means uh, an example of, of being carnal minded was the Jews in the Old Testament. Remember, they come out of Egypt with Moses. And then they go, you know this promised land stuff. I'm ready, but my kids, I'm concerned about my kids. I don't know. And God says, I can take care of your kids. This is what I'm going to do. Your kids will come into the promised land. You, full of excuses and fear, you're going to die over the next 40 years in this desert experience. So it says in Psalm 78, uh, therefore, their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. I don't want to do that. They, they were carnally minded. They, they were disobedient. They had no faith. And God said, you want that? Futility and fear. Guys, you have one life. One life. I don't want you to spend it with futility and fear. I think that's wrong. I think that's horrible. So he says, don't be carnally minded. Be spiritually minded. Then he goes on, there's a new way to live. Remember, this is in part one. The new way to live is resurrection power. And we ask, how do you, how do you measure power? Now, when a spaceship takes off, those thruster rockets, they claim there's about 44 million horsepower. That's how powerful it is. Super powerful, but it's not powerful enough to raise the dead. We're talking about the power of God, who alone has this power, to raise the dead. Now, on my own strength, I'm back to old wretched men that I am. In God's strength, I have this resurrection power that's within me. Matter of fact, in verse 11, I love this. Did a whole Easter service on this one time. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, I mean, I'm in Christ. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So he's saying, you've got resurrection power. Now, I believe, this is the end of the intro, this is the end of the review. I believe there are a lot of people who don't become Christian because they know themselves too well. 
they're looking at you and the change you made. They go, I, I, Sunday I sleep in, man. I can't get up and go to church. I can't stop cussing. I can't stop drinking. I can't stop doing it. I don't know how you do it. I just know myself to, I will fail. And so because of that, they're so convinced of themselves, their own power, Romans 7, they won't become a Christian. But they need to understand resurrection power. So here's our outline this morning. Three things you need to know. First, it's a matter of life and death. That's only two verses. The next two verses, it's a matter of adoption. I love the term adoption. You know, you, you can hear about being born again, being converted, being saved. My favorite term of getting right with God, adoption. And we'll see why in, in just a minute. So the third one is, it's a matter of knowing your hits. So let's read just two, the first two verses. I'm reading from the New King James Bible. It's Romans 8, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, brethren, now because of all he just said, resurrection power, we're debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, the old sinful nature and the old sinful habits. For if you live according to the flesh, you're die. You're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. So that's why it's a matter of life and death. So we go from there. Verse 12, let's back up a bit. It's a matter of life and death. He's saying you're under no obligation to your old ways, your old sinful habits. Now, here's, the, here's what he's saying, that you have a new default system. So when you, you know, sign up for a new email, you get to decide what the default's gonna be. You can, okay, I, I want a blue background, I want le right letters, I want this font, whatever it is, and every time you get an email, it comes to that default. That's what you set up. And it's like, that's your old sinful ways. That temptation comes, Ah, I'm a debtor to that. I just go that way naturally. But now in Christ, it's like you can have a new default system. And so but you go, well, I, I still have my flesh wants the old system. I'm still tempted in those ways. Well, you just tell it you're under new management. I have a new default system now. Now he says, mortify. Your Bible might not say that. It's an old translation. Mortify the flesh. Put it to death. Kill it. My wife and I had a couple over for dinner last night, no names, and the girl went off on how she had murdered a centipede. And I'm going, I'm already praying for a future husband, man. This girl's got issues, man. <laughs> just, just, and I finally said, you need to put this on a T-shirt. You know, this dead centipede. I murdered it. And I said, you know, that's what the Bible talks about. We should mortify our flesh. We should put it to death. Here's the problem. We like to play games with it. We don't kill that temptation. We put it in the closet for a future date. Or we entertain it. We see just how close can we get to it. You know you're going to fall. Come on, we've all been there. But he says, put it to death. Look, look at this scripture in 1 Timothy 5. Verse 6, it says, She who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. So here's, he's picturing a girl who's going from one sexual adventure to the next, jumping from one bed to the next. She's living in pleasure. And in the world's idea, they're like, wow, she's got it made. She's having all the fun. She's doing this, man. She's everything. In God's opinion, she's a walking corpse. Now you're thinking, is that where the movie comes from? No, no, we're talking 
eternally. It's not a joke. This is before God. He says, oh, you think you're envious of that person living in pleasure? She's a walking corpse. And so he says, put it to death. Take it seriously. On ser the Sermon on the Mount, we all know this. If your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Your right hand, cut it off. He is not, Jesus is not suggesting we mutilate ourselves. He is suggesting take this seriously. It'll kill you if you don't. If you live by the flesh, you're going to die. Live by the Spirit. If you're putting to death these things by the Spirit, now, well, you, how does that work? How do you put to death? How do you mortify? Well, here's the problem. Doing it on myself, I can't even do it. If we were to picture a crucifixion, I can't do it myself. I even need help. I can, you know, nail the feet, do one arm, one hand, but the other. I can't do it all. I need help. Just to, sorry. Just to do that. Now, it's like going, if I, it's on my own strength, it's like going into a dark room and yelling at the darkness or trying to do karate chops and chase it away and rebuke it or something. Now, you know what? Why don't you just turn on the light? That's all you need to do. Why, am I... I don't have my clip. I miss it. Sorry. Okay. Sorry to be annoying. All right. Just turn on the light. How do I mortify the flesh? I mean, that's what the command is. And he says, it's through the Spirit. This is how you do it. Psalm 44, verses 1 through 3, says, you know, Lord, we have heard with our ears, oh God, we, we heard our fathers told us of the deeds you did in their days. I get this a lot. Well, we heard about the 70s back in Stonebreaker's living room. Say, oh, Lord, we heard about what they did, and you drove out the nations with your hands. So he's picturing the Jews coming out of Egypt, spending 40 years in the, world, in the desert, and then entering the Canaan, the promised land. Well, remember they had the Perizzites, the Canaanites, and all that. But he's saying, Lord, you're the one that got rid of them. But then your people, the Jews, you, you planted them. But look at this verse. They didn't gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them. It was your right hand. It was your arm. Look at that. Because you favored them. Now, don't get it wrong. The Jews went in there with swords. The Jews went in there with weapons. They still had to hold their ground, but the thing is they stood on God's promises. And as God said, enter the land. Wherever you step, it's yours. So he he equipped them and empowered them for that victory. So this is how you do it. It's a relationship with the Lord. I say relationship as opposed to, if you see the overhead, where's the ark? See, back again, going to the children of Israel, they were once fight, fighting the Philistines. And they're losing. They're being defeated. So they go back to camp that night and say, hey, what's missing, man? Uh, we're supposed to have victory. Why are we? Oh, why don't we bring up that ark thing that Moses made hundreds of years ago? Yeah, that's our lucky charm. We'll just rally around the ark. Let's bring in our, our lucky charm. And, and so they bring it in, and everybody's so excited. And yet they're defeated. And the Philistines actually take the ark and take it to their land. Because it's not about a lucky charm. It's not about something, oh, this thing always works. It's about a relationship. That's why he's saying, if by the Spirit you're doing this, you're going to have victory. So then he goes to, to the second part. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God, 
You didn't receive the spirit of bondage to fear. You're not, you don't fear God in that sense of slavery. But you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Oh, this is good stuff. So he's saying, it's not a, it's a, um, as far as adoption, to me, going to India, I've gone there a bunch of times, like 22 times. One of the hardest things is to see the, the orphans in the street. We are talking about disgusting, disgusting, filth, poverty. Uh, I've seen it where in Calcutta, the airport, you land there, and the parents have taken their kid's forearm and break it, and they make a 90-degree turn here because they're better at begging that way, and then abandon these kids. And you see these kids in the street, you go, this is wrong. Nobody loves them. They've been abused. They've been abandoned, forgotten, and it just kills you. But when you see in contrast to those kids getting adopted, what a contrast. Happiest kids in the world. Because they're going, wait, wait, you, you want me? You, you love me? Are you serious? I have a bed? We have three meals a day? This is too good. You have, you have water inside the house? To be adopted after being abandoned is night and day. Now, if you go back in time 2,000 years ago, this is what adoption was like back then. Number one, it was by choice. It happened on purpose. See, today we've had many, even in this church, adopt, and you apply, invest a lot of money, you might go to China, and they hand you a child, and praise the Lord, they grow up in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Back then, you could walk through a hospital ward of all these babies, and you go, you know what, I want that one. What do you think, honey? Yeah, I, I, don't, I just feel a connection. I just want to pour my life into this one. This boy, this girl, I, I, I choose on purpose this child. You, as a believer, are chosen in Christ. Then once it's chosen, that child has all the benefits of all the other kids. It's not like we get a double share and you might get the leftovers. It's no, we're on equal ground. You are adopted. It's a wonderful, we'll get into this more in chapter 11 where the difference between the Jewish nation and the Gentiles who are grafted in together. So he said, no, it, you, now you become a family member. This is my favorite part. You cannot unadopt that child. It's for good. It's for life. It took seven witnesses to confirm that child was adopted by this family. Now, you could kick out your own kid. You're out. You're out of the world. You could not do that to an adopted child. It was on purpose. Full benefits. No reversible stuff. They're there for good. Now, that adopted child, it's not this fear, this slavish fear. It has this heart that says, Abba. In their original language, it means Papa. Jesus used this. Remember on the night in the garden? Abba, Father, if it's possible for you, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He used that term, Abba, Father. He wasn't in slavish fear. He was in surrender. Now, I just have note to self on this. Even if I think by using the right wording in a prayer, I'm going to get my way. As if God said, oh, Mike, if you put it that way, you're in. No, it's 
it's still the surrender is not my will, but your will be done. So how do I know? How do I know if I'm adopted? Wouldn't you sitting there going, okay, I want to make sure of this. Even Peter the Apostle says, make your election and calling sure. It's not something you take for granted and work it out when you die. Now, he says in verse 14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the, the sons of God, the children of God. First John says it this way, behold what manner of love the Father's given us. We're called the children of God. Okay, so how, how do I know if I'm adopted? Well, has the Spirit led you to Jesus? That's kind of plain and simple. Um, how about this? Does the Spirit convict you of sin? Does the Spirit lead you to repentance? Like John the Baptist said, okay, you claim you repent. Bring forth fruit worthy, meaning show me the difference. Now, see, here's the deal. As a child of God, if I'm saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, or not doing the right thing, so sins of commission, sins of omission, I get blasted. That's a good thing. It proves I got this adoption going on. It proves I'm his child. If, on the other hand, someone is saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, never doing the right thing, and not getting convicted, what does that tell me? Now, I'm not in any position to go, oh, you, you didn't get convicted, you're not adopted. That's not for me. But it is for you if you're going, I haven't been convicted of sin in a while. I have gotten so used to this ingrained sin, am I now beyond conviction? So if you want to be led by the Spirit, does he convict you of sin? Does he lead you to repentance? Does he want you to live, or does he want he make you want to live a life that honors God? That the Spirit's job is to make us more like Jesus Christ. We'll see that more in, uh, in, in Romans chapter 8. Let's get to our last section here. So two more verses. Verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Remember, in their culture, it took seven witnesses to bear witness. Yes, that one was adopted. We have the witness of the Spirit. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, do you see this? Then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, we'll get more into that next week, whether it's suffering persecution or mockery, we may also be glorified together. So let's back up on this. What is he talking about? Know what you have in Christ. He says, it's the Spirit who bears witness. Look at that this way. It's a Spirit-produced awareness of what we all have in Christ. It's not that some have it. It's just that some don't recognize they have it. All right, so it's the Spirit-produced awareness. I read this story. It is hilarious. I tried to prove all the facts. It's hilarious. I couldn't prove everything. It's over 100 years old. But a guy goes into a bank and rob with a pistol and robs the bank of $6,000. They eventually catch the guy. They bust him. He's still got the pistol. He robbed a bank for $6,000 using an antique pistol that was worth $100,000. <laughs> what an idiot. He goes, what? I didn't say that. Yeah, I did. But the thing is, you go, what do you mean? If you knew what you have, if you knew what you already possessed, sell the, sell the gun, you'll make like, what, 
15 times that. But he didn't know the value of what was already in his possession. So he goes out stealing something else. Which makes me wonder, do I know what I have in Christ? Do I know, not will I, what I have now. I mean, besides abundant life and the Prince of Peace and, and all that stuff and the, the commitment of the Holy Spirit, the commitment of the Good Shepherd, do you know what you have in Christ? Look at this. Verse 17, we're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Okay, what does that mean? Say there's four kids in your family. There's you and three siblings, okay? You and three, sorry, I'm having trouble with this. You and three siblings. And your parents die, your mom and dad die. Then the four kids are co-heirs, they're joint heirs. They, they, they share the inheritance, preferably split four ways. You're co-heirs. This verse says, we're co-heirs with Christ. We have an inheritance with Christ. He's sharing it with us. What does that mean? It sounds really good. I'm not sure we can even absorb that this side of eternity. It's like, what? This is waiting for us. This is what you have as a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know much about uh, investing in stocks. <laughs> Zilch. I've never done it. I have money that somebody else does something with. I just... I know a lot about what I should have invested in years ago. You guys there? Were you there the first time you saw Apple? It was a, a, an Apple with a bite out of it. It looks like Eve bit the Apple. And instead of investing in it, I thought, is this demonic? Is this satanic? Could have been a gazillionaire by now. There was a coffee company that boasted it's going to charge $5 for a cup of coffee. And instead of investing in, in, in investing in it, I thought, what idiot is going to spend $5 for a cup of coffee? Do we have any in the room? We have one over here that's, okay, it's okay. Just <laughs> you get a discount, though. So. But the thing is, here you go, $5 for a cup of coffee. That's so stupid. Who's going to, uh, Amazon comes along. You don't have to go to the mall. You just sit in your chair. Your grandson can do it. Watch this, Nana. It's five years old. I just ordered my new toy. Who would do that instead of going to the mall and experiencing all those rude shoppers? You know, just if I had invested in any of those things, I'd be a gazillionaire. I don't know much about it. But here's the thing is, you want a great investment? Read the rest. Become an heir with God. Again, I don't, gra I can't wrap my head around that. What in the world is he talking about? Because most people would rather rob a bank for $6,000 using a $100,000 gun. Now, here's the deal. Some settle for an inheritance of a castle. You ever see a castle? They're pretty cool. Some is a uh, car's bank account. Wish I had a third C. It'd be a great sermon, but... Confetti, I don't know. If you're a believer in Christ, you share an inheritance with Jesus Christ. Now, here's my, here's my challenge. Do you believe that? Or are you the next Eve? 
who knew the promise of God, who knew the warning of God, and yet right away Satan comes along, hey, yeah, so you 